Welcome back to the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast. Recently, I had the pleasure of hosting a live podcast at the Allocate Beyond Summit, where I interviewed Avi Stein and Jordan Stein from Crescent. Allocate's founders, Samir Kaji and Hannah Yang, brought together a fantastic and thoughtful group of allocators, family offices, and VCs for an engaging two days of discussion about private markets. At the event, I interviewed father and son duo from Crescent, Avi Stein, the co-founder and co-chairman of Crescent, and Jordan Stein, Director of Private Capital at Crescent Partners, where they join me on stage to discuss how their firm has achieved astronomical growth over the past few years, largely due to their business building acumen and in part powered by their focus on private markets. Crescent is a client and family owned, award winning multifamily office with over 40 billion in AUM that was built by founders and private equity professionals. We had a fascinating discussion that covered everything from how and why Avi and Jordan built Crescent to the evolution of the wealth management space and how private markets is playing a role in that. Thanks Avi and Jordan for sharing your wisdom and thanks Samir and Hannah for hosting such a fantastic event. Speaking of podcast, we're going to be offering a live podcast with Michael Sidgmore, who's the host of All Goes Mainstream podcast, covering the latest on alternative investments, wealth tech, and private investments. Michael is a partner and co-founder of Broadhaven Ventures, a global early stage fintech investor. And joining him, we will have Avi Stein and Jordan Stein of Cresset. Avi's a longtime investor and entrepreneur and is Cresset's co-founder and co-chairman. Jordan helps lead Cresset's venture capital and growth equity strategies and is also responsible for evaluating a variety of venture strategies. So with that, we would like to welcome Michael Sitchmore, Avi Stein, and Jordan. It's great to be here. As Hannah said, we do have a live podcast with Avi and Jordan and the firm that they've built at Crescent, which is really unique, both in terms of their background, which informed the build of Crescent, as well as what they're doing in private markets. And I'll touch on a bunch of themes, I think, that's happening in both private markets and alternative investing, as well as the wealth management space. And Crescent's a fantastic representation of that. Avi, I'd love for you to start with your background and how that got you to build Crescent the way that you have. Sure. Well, Eric Becker and I, who founded Crescent, were actually two retired or semi-retired private equity executives. We always say that our superpower is that we didn't grow up in the financial services industry. We invested in a lot of financial services companies, but we didn't grow up as a financial advisor because most firms like ours, most multifamily offices were built by financial advisors. Eric and I together invested in about 150 companies, about $8 billion, and we are entrepreneurs ourselves. So our going after those clients that our entrepreneurs was a pretty natural thing. We actually didn't just decide to do this. We both were semi-retired. We both stepped away from our private equity firms for unfortunate reasons. Mine was my own. I was sick. I had cancer. 
his was he unfortunately lost a daughter and wanted to do a year of service in her name. We then came together investing our own family capital, buying companies and doing real estate deals, and we learned something very important. Every time we did something, there were more families and individuals that wanted to invest with us than we had room. So we thought, well, that's an interesting idea. And then the second thing was we were managing our own family capital, and neither of us were really happy with the way we were doing it. We felt like it was disjointed, and we wanted something that was more holistic. So we did a year of research looking at all of the trends in wealth management, private markets, as well as multifamily offices. And what we realized was there was an enormous amount of tailwind, a lot of capital coming in, but it was changing. It was next gen, it was a lot of women. So that's a change because if you look at the industry, I think it's 45% of the financial advisors are over 55 years old and only 7% are under 35 years old. So that's a problem. Secondly, there's a large share shift away from banks and wirehouses who are not really fiduciaries, they're selling product to firms that are independent and are fiduciaries, 12% over the last decade. We thought that's interesting, and then we looked at the industry and it was very fragmented, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit because I've seen your questions. But the other interesting thing for us was if we could build something that distinctly did two things. One, optimized wealth, after-tax wealth, and two, optimized life. Simon Sinek has a great TED Talk. I imagine many of you have seen it. And he says, companies that know what they do and how they do it are good. Companies that know why they do it succeed at an even higher level. So we had our why, and we just decided to build it from scratch with four very distinct parts. The first being everything people think about when they think about a registered investment advisor, though we started with macro strategies and then went down to the manager selection, public markets, all those things. The second pillar for us was services. Everything from family dynamics, governance, education, to estate planning, tax planning, tax preparation, banking and credit, risk management, review of all that, and outsourced services of all kinds, managing people's homes, their boats, things of that nature, as well as making sure that we had a trust company and making sure that we could do all things that anybody needed. So we were that first and only neck to grab in many cases. And then the third pillar was our complete belief that private markets are where the alpha is and that across the private multifamily office universe, there is very little expertise in private markets. So we have about 65 people dedicated to private marketing investing across all the asset classes. And then the last thing was, Eric and I believed in lifelong learning. So we hired a woman by the name of Jessica Malkin who ran Chicago Ideas Week, which is a sort of TED on steroids. And we have done over 300 events for clients as diverse as people like Mark Cuban, Dick Castillo, uh, Holocaust survivors. To, I got to interview Lindsey Vaughn. That was really cool. That's how I got this, by the way, skiing. And from there, we just created something very dif differentiated. I want to touch on something <clears throat> that you talked about, private markets. And that's very different than many wealth management platforms. We're starting to see this happen in the independent channel where the platforms or advisors are figuring out how to offer private investments, particularly in alternative investments, to their clients or external clients. Jordan, I want to go over to you because you're running and spearheading the private markets business and function within Crescent. How have you thought about structuring that part of the business and meeting the unique needs of both clients to Crescent on the wealth side, but also many family office and high net worth partners that you work with on the fund side? 
I think, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, there's this gap in the wealth management space in terms of ability to execute and invest in private markets and what that actually does for a portfolio. So from Crescent, from day one, that was critical to what we were doing in order to be successful, is to build a team that has the capability to invest across all the different asset classes and the experience to execute on that and do it in a really solid way. That's not easy to do. It's expensive to do. One of the things we've done, for example, is we've got three people on our team whose only job it is to source talent. We also have outsourced talent headhunters that we work with. From day one, we really wanted to build the team and now have 65 across those different verticals, across different asset classes. We believe it is important to be a little bit more programmatic than episodic when you think about portfolio construction. So instead of jumping from, oh, this deal looks exciting or, oh, this manager looks exciting, it really makes sense to start from scratch. What are your liquidity needs? What are your goals? And how do we put together a portfolio that can maximize and optimize in and around for those goals? That's going to be bespoke. Every client looks a little bit different, but generally speaking, that's been our approach. I think the success we've had going external, about 50% of the capital that we've raised has come from non-clients. And part of that feeds back into the thesis of Crescent, which is it's really hard for smaller family offices and RIAs to develop the talent to execute across different asset classes and strategies. And so they're attracted to what Crescent's doing because they say, well, I like my advisor, I love what I have, but I don't have the ability to do any of this private markets investing. The team is maybe one person across asset classes or different sectors or whatever. And so it's brought them over to invest and participate in the things that we're doing. So holistic portfolio construction across asset classes, across sectors, bespoke to the needs of that client or that family. Always fascinated by the way in which wealth management business, from a business model perspective, is constructed. You have private banks, you have the independent wealth channel, RIAs, and I think you sit in between that. You're not quite a private bank, but you have a lot of the same features, but you're independent. And you have a lot of the resources, especially on the private side. Avi, I'd love to unpack how you thought about the business model of Crescent, maybe first starting with, as someone who was being served by others before, what did you feel needed to be different, and then how did you tailor that as you built Crescent for those who you're serving? I think you have to start with who are the clients. And from our perspective, there were four types of clients that we wanted to serve. The first type of client was the family that says, I want a family office, but maybe I don't want to do it myself, or maybe I want to do some of the elements of that, but I want somebody else who can do it at scale to do the rest of the elements of that. That's one type of client, and that necessitated all the things that we've talked about, which includes a deep commitment to technology and continuing to make things easier for our clients. The second type of client that we had to think about serving is more the crossover client, the person who is at JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or one of those places, and it just wants another look at how their wealth is being managed, wants to understand what are the real fees I'm paying, how is this being done? And so we have those clients. And for that, we had to have deep manager selection, the ability to reconstruct portfolios, deconstruct portfolios, and make sure we had that right. The third type of client is something that, that is really near and dear to people's hearts here. We have something called Crescent Catalyst, where we have today 100 tech entrepreneurs, young founders of businesses, they're not always tech businesses, a few young venture capitalists and private equity folks. And as a group, their liquidity on our platform is maybe $300 million. But 
We did a recent survey, because one of the things we do is a little M&A quarterbacking for people who are selling their businesses. So we did a recent survey of expected liquidity events so that we could staff that. And nine billion, at the time I think we were maybe 30 billion, so nine billion on 30 billion, almost a third of that was those Crescent Catalyst clients, those 100 clients. So their expectation of their generation of wealth is amazing. And for us, it's fantastic because it keeps us relevant with trends and venture and other things. They are great for us when we're talking to venture capitalists, and Jordan will talk about that. But they're also the cool kids, that when we have generational wealth, the younger members of those families, they want to hear from these young people. So we had to be able to build out technology and an infrastructure to serve those. And then the last type of client was families, there are about 700 of them, who just invest in our private investment vehicles. So we had to build out a group, Tammy Funasaki is here today, who's part of that group, that serves those families, that it goes to them, talks to them about what is it that they're looking at and what do they need, and then showing how we cover the waterfront across all private asset classes, and how we do it both with funds, direct investments, and the ability to co-invest. If you just take our private equity for a second, and then I'll be quiet because it's a long answer. We start with private equity funds. Kevin O'Donnell, who runs that group, ran the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund private investment group. So he invests across funds. And when I say funds, I'm not talking about Blackstone and KKR. I'm talking about interviewing hundreds and maybe thousands of funds with his team and investing in those that he thinks have the highest chance of outperforming. This is largely growth equity and, and buyout. We also have a co-invest vehicle. So people can average down their cost through the co-invest vehicle. We don't charge anybody anything to put them in funds. The co-invest vehicle is a joint venture, if you will, between Kevin's team and our direct private equity team that does a lot of recaps and family office or families investing in families kind of investing. We charge one in 10 on that, which is obviously averaging down the two in 20 that the other firms are doing. And you get a second set of eyes on it. We also have the direct group, which I just mentioned, and they're recapitalizing all kinds of family companies, largely doing what's different for individual investors than institutional investors, which is being mindful of the taxes and also protecting the downside as well as trying to grab as much of the upside. So we approach it holistically. In each asset class, we do that same thing, fund investing, co-investing, and direct. Jordan, on that point, how much is the private market's capabilities of Crescent, the differentiator that gets, whether it's clients to join Crescent in full or to work with you on the private market side, that's the driving force behind why people are deciding to work with Crescent? Yeah, I think it's a key factor. I think there's a lot of people, again, who are unhappy with the experience that they've had and have learned enough now, and there's a lot more information out there around the importance of having privates in your investment portfolio. So they look at that, and then they say, okay, who are these Crescent guys? What are they doing? They'll look and see, and we'll talk to them, and they'll understand that. And then, it's, okay, well, what else are you doing? And then, mentioned earlier, trying to optimize not just for wealth, but for life. I think when we've had conversations with many people at these other RIAs, they feel very siloed and are just a customer getting products sold to them and interfacing with one person, or maybe they don't even have one advisor that they work with. And we're trying to create a much more cohesive experience for that client. So I think our experience and capability in private markets often gets them in the door. And then they look at the rest of the platform and say, well, OK, I can see how this, 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 and this would all be super helpful. I'm not getting any of that. 
I don't even understand how it works, what I'm doing. So I think it's part of that proposition. What do you do that's differentiated in private markets? I think it starts with team and experience. It's very difficult and expensive to put together the right talent who, generally speaking, isn't necessarily out there looking to go work at a family office. You need a really dedicated effort to put the right team together who can execute. On the direct side, we've hired, starting with Abby and Eric at the top, Chris Baim who works on that team, who's got decades of experience, along with many other members on our team who have these decades of experience. It's really important to put that together and in one place, and it's not easy to do. And on the fun side, we brought in Kevin, recently Sherry Young-Lewis from Aon, and have built out a really big team there too, with expertise in specific asset classes. That's private credit, that's venture. A couple of quick examples might help. Real estate is obviously an asset class that a lot of people care about. Many families have made a lot of money in real estate and they have their own expertise in real estate. But when the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act came out and it had this little known provision called Qualified Opportunity Zones, I read it and Eric read it and we said, wow, this is the best opportunity for our clients. And we also realized it's kind of white space because there are no QOZ funds. So we set out to build a team that could take advantage of investing through qualified opportunity zones, but only doing it in class A real estate, low levered. We have 22, 23 people on that team today. We're building, I think, about $3.5 billion last I looked of real estate in qualified opportunity zones in great markets. And why does that matter? Because if you think about it, People always want to invest in cash-flowing real estate and maybe not as much in developmental real estate, but you're getting the benefit of almost a cash-flowing deal because you're deferring your taxes till December 31st, 2026 on that gain that you're investing. You don't have to invest all the gain. You can invest part of the gain. You do whatever you want. You can make a lot of great decisions, and especially in 2020, when you were getting a six-year deferral, that was pretty good. And then everything that you invest in a qualified opportunity zone grows without capital gains tax. So you never pay capital gains tax on the then invested capital. But that's not the end of the story, and that's not the part that I think is the most interesting. The part that's the most interesting is there's no depreciation recapture. And anybody who's done real estate deals knows that you buy this cash flowing real estate, you depreciate the property, you get this great tax-free cash flow, and then you sell it and you go, oh no. I'm recapturing all of that at ordinary income rates. And that's really not a good surprise. That's why 1031 exchanges grew up and all that. But when you think about it this way, in qualified opportunity zone investing, they step up the basis of the asset to the then fair market value if you hold it for 10 years. So it's about five to 700 additional basis points of return just because of the tax benefits. That's thinking like individual investors and family investors versus thinking about the way I used to think about it in the private equity business, they're all tax exempt anyhow, I don't care. I wanna touch on that point because that's I think a really interesting distinction about what you're doing now, building a private markets platform. We obviously have a lot of people in the audience who are individual or family office investors, not institutional investors who have maybe different mandates, different tax treatments, et cetera. So you also have, like you mentioned, Jordan, a institutional quality team who may have come from institutions or sovereigns investing. How do you think about investing in private markets from individual investors' perspective and how can those who are 
operating in private markets, whether as intermediaries or individuals approach private markets in that way. You want to go? You want me to go? Sure, go ahead. All right. So today there's $9 trillion of investment capital roughly across private markets projected to grow to $18 trillion in the next three or four years. You've got individuals who are allocated less than 10% of their assets. You've got endowments. The better ones are 50 to 60%. Average is 44% private assets. Pension funds, same thing. You have much better information today. You have vehicles that are being generated like interval funds and other. Blackstone has 75 people who are trained on the individual marketplace. So whether it's an interval fund or it's just a secondary market making liquidity, liquidity is a big need for private individuals. We think about it in terms of going across all asset classes like I mentioned, but we also think about getting over that liquidity barrier that happens for a lot of people. And I often tell the, I say 40-year-old me uh, out of vanity, but it's really probably 42 or 43-year-old me, who had just made some money in the private equity business, and I was being advised by a wirehouse, which will remain nameless, but you'll definitely know who it is because, as I tell the story, or you may not, but they said to me, even though we have all these private vehicles, what you should do is you should invest only in the public markets because you have all this private exposure. Why do you want more private exposure? You should invest in this structured note. You should invest in this vehicle that we have that's a public market vehicle. And I listened to a lot of that advice. I went back 20 years after that and did some research. And I took the MSCI against the Cambridge Index. And I said, how much did I win or lose by that strategy? The numbers are pretty staggering. For every million dollars that I invested in the public markets that could have been invested broadly in the private markets, just in growth and buyout investing, not even venture, and not even top quartile. We're just talking median index to median index. It was a $6.2 million difference for every million dollars. So we tell clients, don't be 40-year-old me. Let's find a way to start this early. Let's find a way to be really thoughtful, strategic, diversified, protecting the downside, and creating some liquidity elements for you in case you need it. How do most high net worth individuals or family offices go about and approach private markets then? Because they may not have the size and scale or the institutional backgrounds that the team at Crescent has, or for that matter, that private banks have as well. They hire people as well, or there's Allocate, which is, serves to exist in the context, and we'll talk about that a bit as well as you all are involved with Allocate in a few different ways. Yeah. So how do you think about the different ways in which the high net worth channel as more and more capital flows into this space. And I think there's an important point within what you said a little bit earlier. It's not necessarily just the Blackstones or the Carlisles that people are investing into or should be investing into, but it's other funds as well. How should investors go about mapping this space out and then thinking about how they get exposure to it? Jordan, why don't we start with you, given your focus on the private market? Yeah, absolutely. As I said before, it really comes back down to are you resourced appropriately to do this? I think that's the first question you have to ask yourself. And that resource means a couple different things. One, do you have a team who has the experience and the background and the depth to be able to execute across not just one asset class, but all of them? Usually you can't find that in a single person. 
And then I think each asset class has unique characteristics. Venture, for example, is very capacity constrained. If you look at venture returns, they're very concentrated with the best managers who have persistence. The best managers usually stay the best managers. And those managers are very difficult to access. They're looking for LPs who can contribute significant amounts of capital consistently, fund after fund after fund, and hopefully have some differentiating factor. We've spoken with about 700 VC firms over the last 18 months. The reason that pretty much all of them that we've talked to are excited about us potentially joining their LP base is, yes, we have the scale. Yes, we have the growth. They're not worried about our ability to stick around. But we also have this entrepreneurial ethos. Our average client is a 45-year-old first-generation wealth CEO founder across a wide variety of industries. We've got our Crested Catalyst program, which we talked about earlier, spoke specifically on helping these entrepreneurs who are 12 to 24 months pre-liquidity, many of the same individuals that these VCs work with. They look and say, well, that's very different than my endowments and foundations and fund-to-funds and everyone else, and it allows us to get that access. For your average investor, that's really hard because they don't want to spend as much time going to raise from a million different LPs. That's most true in venture, but you do see that across asset classes. It manifests itself in different ways. Private credit, for example, which we think is a really attractive asset class right now, given where interest rates are and relative yield generation, for that strategy, it's really important to have scale. Scale is how you're able to get preferential fees. So that's how we've approached that. Most family offices, most individual investors, they can't manufacture that scale. They're paying sticker price. I think if you aren't resourced to be able to do that, and frankly, most people aren't, you need to look and find, okay, well, who can help me with this? Who is really good? Who has the team and the ability to do this? A platform like we've built, a platform like Allocate. And I think that's the right framework and approach. But at the same time, there's also a lot of family offices out there who just really like getting their hands dirty. They really like (laughs) the process of investing and being a part of a company, and that's totally fine. So you have to understand what is your utility function, what matters to you, And if ultimately you're trying to optimize and create the right portfolio, if you don't have the team and you don't have the access, it probably makes sense to look and find and partner with someone who does. On that point, which I think is very true, particularly when it comes to family offices or successful high net worth individuals, is they've created wealth for a reason. And it's generally because they've been independent. They've been enterprising. They may not like paying fees. So I have to get to the fee question. How should people in the wealth channel, whether individuals or intermediaries, think about the fee question when it comes to private markets. Because they may, in certain cases, pay fees. Various platforms, funds themselves, have fees. And you sat on both sides of the table. You were running a fund as a GP. You were a high net worth client. And now you've solved the fee question on your end by creating Crescent itself. How do you think others should think about that and approach the fee question when it comes to private markets? I think you have to start with fees are an issue in the absence of value created. What you really are looking at is returns after fees and after taxes. And you have to think about things that way. It's not thought about in a vacuum. But what I would say is that there is a lot of allergy to paying people 2 and 20 or 1 and 10 or whatever it is. But what's the alternative? The alternative is... Either you have the expertise, you've been a real estate entrepreneur, you've built a great reputation in the real estate community, you know how to look at deals, you have deal sourcing, you have enough presence in the market, 
Well, if that's the case, then you should do those deals yourself. But when it comes to investing in venture or private equity, how are you going to build the expertise to be able to get the, the value out of it? You have two choices. You can either decide you're going to try to learn it yourself or you're going to try to bring in somebody who might not be at the highest level so you don't have to pay them 1 in 10 or 2 in 20. But if you're getting anybody good, you're going to have to pay them 1 in 10 or 2 in 20 because otherwise they'd go do it somewhere else. If you're the type of person that really likes to learn and you're willing to say, well, look, I may make some mistakes and I may not get the same execution, but I like doing this, I want to do this, then that's fine. But if you're really looking at it from what's going to give you the best return, I would say insource those things where you have expertise, you have edge, you have talent, you have time you've spent in a business. Maybe some administrative things because you like that control. But then really think about outsourcing those things where scale matters, where you can bring to bear uh, a team that has enormous expertise so the likely execution is better and that net return, net of fees, net of taxes is going to be better for you. I want to drill down on one specific area of private markets, Jordan, relevant to why we're here today, which is venture. Yeah. So why does Crescent have a focus on venture and what do you like about it? Holistically, we think broadly in terms of portfolio construction across asset classes, across sectors. Venture is a very important part of that overall picture. We had wanted to do venture from the beginning, but we didn't want to do it ourselves. I think there is an inherent advantage. We didn't want to compete with the great VCs out there of the world. So if we weren't going to do it ourselves, then we wanted to partner with these tier one VCs. And going back to what I said earlier about the attractiveness of LPs, well, it took us a little while until we filled out that profile. We felt like we hit an inflection point about a year and a half ago where we had the scale, we had the ecosystem, we had the access to launch that strategy. And so in doing that, we've got a team, as I mentioned, we've talked to over 700 firms in the last year and a half, two years. That requires significant resources, but it builds on itself, and you start to become a part of that community. The VC community is pretty tight-knit. People know each other. And so sort of getting in with some great opportunities early on with some fantastic managers helped a lot, and it snowballs from there. You have large size and scale, I think, you're about $33 billion of AUM or so, and you obviously work with, or even more now, growing by the day, but also work with outside capital partners through these external parties who invest into your fund deals on the platform. How do you reconcile the question of how do we find the best funds, which may be smaller in size, sometimes can generate better returns, as well as co-invest or direct opportunities, with the size and scale that you have and the amount of capital you have to put to work? It's a great question. Steve Kaplan, University of Chicago professor, did an enormous amount of research on which private equity funds, this wasn't venture, but private equity funds, performed the best. And his conclusion was fund one, fund two, maybe fund three, middle market, lower middle market. That's basically what it was. It was a little more nuanced than that. He's a professor and a great, very smart guy. But there's several thousand funds that fit the description I just laid out. I remember when I was raising our second fund and I got a call and it was going to be, I think, I don't know, a billion dollar fund maybe. And I got a call from the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority and they said, gee, Abby, it's really great to meet you. We've heard so many great things about you, 
from what we've heard, we think we'd like to invest $100 million in your fund. I thought, $100 million? Well, that's really pretty cool. And I said, okay, great. Do you have the materials? What do you need? And they said, well, we need two things. And I said, okay, what's the first one? Well, we need a co-invest. And I said, oh, of course you'll get co-investment rights. And they said, no, no, we need a co-invest. You need to have something that you've already invested in that you can show us that we can invest in. I'd never heard of that. And I thought, okay, what else? And they said, well, we need you to come over to Abu Dhabi and present that within the next 60 days. Well, in two weeks, I was on the plane with the Cohenfest, and then they negotiated a few other things. And I, of course, gave it to them because I saw them as this long-term great source of capital. If you look across the landscape today, you only have 6% of U.S. companies that are still defined benefit pension plans. That market has gone away. If you look across the state pension plans that are big funders of private investments, well, most of them are highly allocated, and when you go through a market situation like this, the so-called denominator effect means they're over-allocated because their public investments come down, so their percentage of privates is too high, and they're not reliable. So there's this new thing called family offices. Been around for a really long time. Multifamily offices just beginning to grow that are sort of the apple of the eye of the private fund market. And you can use that scale, much like the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority used on me to negotiate better terms, a lot of co-investment, which averages down and gets you more exposure. And for example, in our credit vehicle, through co-investment as well as fee reduction, we're paying about a third of the fee load that we were paying when we were just investing at retail and private credit funds. So it's a very different set of circumstances. I think that's a really important factor. How do you think about the evolution of private markets? There's firms that may become asset gatherers, and then there's firms that may be smaller, and focus more on returns, but the whole point of private markets is to generate alpha. So right. I feel like I just contradicted myself in Correct. a sense. And not to say well, that some of these asset gatherers- There, there is private market well, beta. I mean, you but, invest with yeah. the largest PE funds, that's private market beta. So how should we think about that? Because I, I do feel in search for alpha, there's now beta. One of the things that we think about as we evaluate managers is, do you have a right to exist? Is there a reason that you have some sort of structural edge that we can buy into? There's so many venture capital firms who spun up over the last few years that frankly don't. I think that's the case, broadly speaking, across asset classes and strategies, but it differs in the way that it appears. And so why do you have a right to exist in private credit? Why do you have a right to exist in buyout? Why do you have a right to exist in venture? Those are different questions that get answered different ways. From my perspective, it all goes back to, do you have the expertise to sort of filter through the types of funds that either A, are just becoming asset gatherers and they're motivated and incented a different way, deploy significant amounts of capital relatively quickly so they can go gather more assets versus a benchmark or someone like that in venture who is, I'm very, very motivated by my multiples and by returns. And in order to maximize that, I'm going to keep my fund size within a certain span. I think it's more pronounced in venture. Kaplan, who I also had as my professor when I went to University of Chicago, talks about this concept of persistence. And within venture capital, uniquely, there's more persistence than any other asset class. And what that means is if you are a manager who's had a top quartile fund, you are relatively more likely that your next fund will also be top quartile. That helps a lot looking at track record, but there's a lot more nuance to it, obviously, than just track record and understand where it came from. In other asset classes, there may not be that persistence, but there's structural edge. 
And that structural edge changes over time. So finding the right firm, the right company, and understanding why do you have a right to exist right now and why you're going to outperform your peers is critical. And it requires a lot of work. I think the markets are going to develop a lot. And I think the barriers are information, education, and liquidity. And I think all three of those things are going to be addressed. I think the secondary market, which has grown to almost a trillion dollar market now, I mean, it's ridiculous, I think is addressing it. I think there will be opportunities to lend against private market assets that don't exist today. Obviously, with the banking crisis where it is today, that's going to take some time. We've got to get through that. And by the way, the other thing that's really instructive on all this is if you think about the run on the banks that we just had, Silicon Valley, First Republic, very near and dear to everybody here. One thing that nobody ever thought about before that was the power of your smartphone, how you could move money. So the run on the bank wasn't a line. It was you moving money with your smartphone. Well, the same thing is happening in private market investing. There are many firms that, and Allocate's doing a really good job with their technology, and there are many firms that are creating technology that more and more information is going to get out. More and more people are going to find ways to do this. We're going to solve for some liquidity, maybe not full liquidity. We're going to solve for the ability for people to really understand these markets with better technology over time. What is that? mean for private markets, though? Because you're saying, Jordan, you said the structural edge, alpha in private markets has historically come from having an information edge, having some sort of advantage due to lack of liquidity. There's a number of reasons why. As private markets become more transparent, become more liquid, and as more information floods into private markets, where do in both investors as well as fund managers find an edge. So look, there's 87% of all companies today above $100 million in revenue are private. Public markets are half the number of companies they were at their peak at the end of 2000. There's nine times, I think, as many private companies as there are public companies. So in the private equity space, there's still a pretty long way to go. In real estate, axiomatic that it's a question of the growth and development and how fast, but absolutely that's been pretty fragmented. Private credit, the interesting thing today is there's $3 of private equity dry powder for every dollar of private credit dry powder. When I started in the private equity business, we could put even 10% down sometimes on a company and borrow 90% of it today. That's not the case. It's 50-50 for the most part. So there's a dollar of private equity going in for every dollar of private credit. So what does that mean? That means that there's going to be a lot of room for more private credit, which, as Jordan mentioned, is probably adjusted for senior risk, 10 11% kind of returns, the best asset class going today along with private equity secondaries. Then we talked about this concept of edge. There's always going to be edge in certain things. I think, where do we have edge? We have edge with private family-owned companies that want to recapitalize, not sell, and want a patient partner. That's where we have edge. So that's where we do our direct investing. We also have edge because we have a partnership with a group called West Monroe that does all the tech and ops diligence, uh, mid-market and large buyouts. They're a long relationship of ours, and we created a fund with them. So we're seeing 100 deals a year that we pick three or four to do, to co-invest with great sponsors. That's edge. We don't have edge 
just going out and investing in, in competing with buyout firms and middle market buyouts. So we don't do it. There we invest with funds and we try to co-invest with them to average down and, and average up our pricing. There's always going to be places where there's edge. The private markets have a lot of room to grow before even with a lot of information and a lot of democratization, there's a problem like in the public markets that you can't find alpha. I think even with that information, just to add, is there's still an education component, an understanding of what to look for, what to look out for. I've had a lot of conversations externally with people who are just trying to get into venture. It's interesting to hear the questions they ask, or they'll say, hey, I just talked to this manager. I'll send you the deck. What do you think? I think it could be really interesting. It's like, well, I'm not so sure. And I think that's going to be an interesting problem that, yes, there can be more information readily available, but if you don't know how to digest that information in the right way, it doesn't really matter. I think the ability to do that, that will persist. And it's not just that the information is made available, it's understanding how to read it. So on that point, what made you decide to invest into Allocate when you talk about being able to survey the market have persistence and performance with top mm -hmm. managers, educate. How did you think about since, why Allocate's the right fit? Since you did all of the initial work, Jordan, you go first. Sure. We're thrilled to be investors in Allocate. And I think one of the first reasons we were attracted to investing in the platform is we were both kind of attacking the same problem. Allocate is doing a fantastic job democratizing private investing. They have an unbelievable right to exist. The combined experience of the team Samir's background, Hannah's background, everyone else puts them in a very unique position to be able to access just about any venture capital firm that they want to specifically. And they have an unbelievable edge within that ecosystem. That's hard to do. They built it over 20 years. We really liked what they were building out on the tech side. And I think it's absolutely missing in our industry, which is somewhere that family offices, RIAs, who don't have the expertise themselves can go to a digital platform that works really, really well and leverage that to actually start investing in venture and do it with a team who's had that 20 plus years of experience. At the very first, it was like, okay, that makes total sense. And then we started talking about what the roadmap looks like, the opportunity to leverage that in a multitude of different ways. And the more and more time that I spent with primarily Samir, the more excited that we got because we look like a customer and I'm really excited about it. Samir and I have a great relationship. We talk all the time. He's showing me the new technology that they have, which is fascinating and works really, really well. From day one, we kind of saw all that. And then, of course, it always comes down to team and founders. What we saw in Samir and Hannah were two very motivated, hungry people who had spent the last 20 years developing a perch from which they could identify a problem and create something to solve it. Put all of that together, and we're really happy partner, and I think they've frankly exceeded expectations, although they were really high to begin with, I promise. So when Jordan first presented the idea, I had already met Samir in a different context and thought very highly of him. But when Jordan first presented the idea, we were, well, this is a little off target for us, not typically what we do. But you kind of know it when you see it. Eric and I are entrepreneurs. In addition to private equity business, we've both built other businesses and we really believe in entrepreneurship. And when we find young people who are driven, smart, high integrity, know what they're doing, and as Jordan mentioned, have this great perch from which they've really learned, it's a pretty easy decision to say, wow, we want to be part of that. And we're very happy we did. You mentioned this a little bit, Jordan, that the data piece 
within private markets, particularly venture, is missing for the family yes. office and wealth channel. What are some of the other things that you'd like to see be created within private markets? It's a great question. The missing data piece is really interesting because it's actually specific to different asset classes. If you were to say, I want to start investing in venture and I want to go look at the returns from the best performing venture funds, good luck. You won't find them. It's a very well-kept secret. You go a little bit further up, private credit, private equity buyout, it's a lot easier to find. The information is more accurate than not versus venture. And so it'll be really interesting to see, if we talked about kind of this informational edge that may or may not persist, will that become something that LPs get more broad access to? And I don't know that it will in venture. I think it will and will continue to become the case in other asset classes. But I think generally speaking, there's a divide between those who are able to invest in private markets and those who can't. And I'd love to continue to see that gap close. And I think that's exactly what Allocate is trying to do. It's exactly what we're trying to do. It starts with education. It's understanding why do private investments matter? Why should they be a part of your portfolio? And from there, understanding, okay, here's the right way to do it. It's kind of full circle, right? When you asked me at the beginning a little bit about Crescent, and I said, you got to know your why, but then you got to know your what and your how. So the what, for us, is exactly what you ask. It's democratization of private investing, building feeder vehicles, doing things where we're doing the work that any institutional investor would do and then offering that to individuals. I think you will see a lot more of that and it's democratization for us also of family office services. So it's really bringing that down to a level where it's consumable and that will continue in my view. That is a great way to end on the note of the mainstreaming. Mm -hmm. The mainstreaming of all. Which is what you all are doing at at Crescent Mm -hmm. to pioneer that. Thank you. Congratulations on what you've built. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you about evolution of private markets and wealth management. Thank you, Michael. It was really a pleasure to be here with you today. And thanks to Alex and all of you for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sidgmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going